0: Yeah. I think just to, I say this all the time, because like at this point now, you know, obviously I've gotten to a point where I'm speaking on a lot of events and people are kind of asking me about my story and everybody's obsessed with the idea of passive income. And I love this podcast. I've heard a bunch of your shows. It's great. And I think passive income and strategy is really the key because everyone wants their time back, right? The goal is always how do I work enough to where I have investments that are paying for the lifestyle that I want so that I can choose what I do with my time whether that's family or travel or friends or work, you know, whatever it is you wanna do. And I think the best way to do that is figure out a day job that makes a lot of money.
1: You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. And when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing in commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview dive deeper and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20 year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, it's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation. And I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies And you get to be a part of that process as well so come be a fly on the wall enjoy the conversations and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons welcome to the passive wealth principles podcast show i'm your host jake harris i have uh, one of my friends Uh, or at least another one of my friends and special guest, David Lover on the show today. David got started into the mortgage industry when he was 19 years old. And it's a fun little story of how that happened. He was on a summer break from college, started in the mortgage industry, made like $50,000 over that course of the summer. And now here, 17 years later, he is still in the mortgage industry. He has taken and leveraged that high income earning position to then invest into many other facets of real estate, into flips, into Airbnbs, now into retail shopping centers and prefab homes. And he's taken that and you get a chance to dive into the details, the lessons learned, the the risk profile of that, the amount of effort and the returns that he has experienced in each one of these different asset classes and breaks it down to why he's interested or not interested in some of those. So welcome to Passive Wealth Principles Podcast and my guest, David Lauver. David Lover, my man, I'm excited to talk to you because uh, every time you and I hang out, it's like there's we're doing the same things in pl- parallel, like we're looking at the same things, we're seeing the world in the same way. And, and it was actually interesting before we even started uh, uh, recording this episode, we were talking a- about, you know, you know, manufacturing modular construction. And, you know, the because the, we're trying to solve one of the problems of Getting anything built in California or Texas right now is a terrible uh, pain in the ass. But let's not dive into that. I actually want to bring this back to your background. You have a fascinating background. You're, I've heard your story now a couple of times, but, and I think this is going to be a treat for the, the audience to listen about how you've taken and grown a- across the spectrum to where you are today. So why don't you take a few minutes? to do your introduction, like, and, and walk us through where you, where you grew up, where you started, how you kind of really got into the business world. And then how's that's evolved into where, what is taking you today?
0: Well, first of all, I have to say, I mean, we go way back and I'll never remember, or I'll never forget when you were in San Francisco and just like randomly hit me up and you're like, what are you working on? And we went and looked at that $10 million project. And then when I was in San Antonio, I was like, hey, what are you working on? And we did this incredible tour of the hotel and that giant development you're working on and then the smaller one. And it's, uh, I'll say you are a very gracious human and I'm very grateful to be on your podcast.
1: Oh yeah, that's, uh, I appreciate that. And also you're one of the random people that I love what you do as well. You just show up to people's office. And be like, hey, I want to be like, let's, I want to come hang out with you for a day. Can you come stop by? And I think you were, uh, you'd bought some property in the area and you, you did that. You popped in and stopped off at the office and we, we hung out for an afternoon.
0: I try not to give people notice. I'm like, hey, I'm at your house. <laughs> Let me in. <laughs>
1: my wife would kill you, you know, yeah. <laughs> or me. Actually, she'd kill me if that was the case. She's like, I actually did that with my dad dude, to be honest with you, like I showed up, I was like, ah, no big deal. Just come over to the house. Like dad. And I had some of the kit and, and she was, my wife was just like, I'm not okay with you. And I was like, it's my dad. Like, and it was, she's like, no. So I was like, eh. anyway, um, uh, let's walk, get into your background. Uh, my wife is not okay with random pop-ins. I am okay with that in my office. if I have time.
0: Okay. Yeah. Let's jump into it. So, uh, I was 19 years old. I was home from summer from like one year of college. I got into the mortgage business in 2005. This is the last time the mortgage business was crazy before this 2020 run. And back then it was zero down financing and no income qualification and uh, qualify for five times more than you should. And anybody could get a loan. So I made 50 grand in the summer, had a great time, realized it was something I liked. And here I am 17 years later, still in the mortgage business. So that, that kind of fueled the, the earnings, right? I started learning how to earn and meet realtors and do all that stuff. And then once that money was coming in, obviously, we jumped into the investment side and have had an incredible journey through that.
1: Well, I want to dive into as far as a little bit like when you started, you started in the mortgage business. You're like, all right, maybe college is not, not for me. I made more money in the summer doing uh, mortgages than uh, I probably could make after I graduate and get a degree. But then you really started. Talk me through like your first year or so in the in the industry, and then you know, uh, you know, I'm leading you to your your mentor or whoever that that helped you know take you to the to the next levels of of your mortgage business uh, early on.
0: Yeah, you know, so it's it really early on. I think I was driven by a first mentor who just gave me a shot. I mean, who else would have given some 19-year-old kid with no experience an, an opportunity to sell mortgage loans? And so I, I don't think he was driving my disciplines or sales skills as much as he was very understanding and kind of worked with me. So I was doing, you know call it 150 grand a year in commissions and feeling pretty good about that uh 2008 happens and basically the first broker i was at went out of business the second broker i was at six months later went out of business and the third broker i was at went out of business and at some point it was like uh, how that business worked is you're on a split so if you go sell three hundred thousand dollars worth of commissions the house keeps half and you keep half so you know, I'd have my 150 K that I'd give to the brokerage. And I was like, how do you go out of business when I, you don't pay me anything All all I do is bring you money. So that led to me starting my own shop. And so it's just meant to be a little shop that serviced me. And then I met a guy named Rick Ruby who runs the core training. I think the best real estate and mortgage trainer out there. And him and I were kind of arguing because I was 22, 23, making 150 K net a year with my own little shop, like feeling pretty good about myself. And, uh, I remember he turned over his tax return and, you know, he made millions of dollars a year. And I was like, well, I guess I'm ready to listen and learn. And so, you know, I've been on an 11-year ride with Rick, still coach with him today. And uh, I learned something from him every single time I talk to him.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's awesome. And that's actually, uh, so Rick, you know, he's young, naive, I'm crushing it. I'm amazing. You know? And then you all of a sudden you kind of get that, that old sage uh, wisdom to slap you upside the head and be like, Hey, listen, you know? uh, So talk me through like, what are some of the things that he taught you about or instilled. And maybe, you know, that uh, allowed you to take from making a little shop and, and you know, making $150,000 a year to, you know uh, the levels of success that Rick has.
0: I'm going to say that Rick for sure instilled in me being a lifelong learner and the value of education and dedicating time to education. I think that principle came from our relationship, but what I actually learned from him was actually not a Lot of mortgage skills. He taught me how to be a businessman. Like, hey, you got to count every lead that comes in. Hey, you got to count the conversion. Hey, every employee on your team needs a piece of paper that says what they do and how they're being measured. Hey, you've got to run this daily or weekly meeting. Hey, you've got to like count the numbers and look at your P and L every single month. Like, just all the skills that now apply in every other business that I'm involved with. Like uh, Rick through very tough and aggressive mentorship taught me those skills. But I learned them in the mortgage business, but they all translate to any other business.
1: Yeah, that uh, totally makes sense is actually. um, So do you do any kind of outside like EOS or, you know, uh, systems that you're doing? Or is that just stuff that Rick had taught you that you've now instilled into your initially mortgage business? Now these other kpis or lead tracking or you know business description or job descriptions or is it your own system or is it someone else's that you've then adapted to what you're doing
0: yeah so uh i'm gonna say that rick is uh he tries to keep things very very simple and he does it very well he makes you know five figures net profit per year he's worth nine figures the guy is very talented and sharp it's not a a matter of not being able to go complicated. He just likes keeping things simple. So, you know, he taught me, hey, you should do an offsite plan with your team once a quarter. And he gave me like a kind of a PowerPoint to do it with. But then I liked the idea but wanted more on it. So then, of course, I got traction and then learned the EOS system and I started doing my PowerPoints with the traction system and their forms. But like I wouldn't have even known, hey, I need to do an offsite meeting every six months if I hadn't like, you know, had that original mentorship. So he gave me a lot of like, you need to do this. And then I'd find greater education to dig into like processes that enhance it.
1: So you you started figuring out how to make money, earned income and really run a business, taking it from, you know, making low six figures, growing that and then and scaling your team. So let's talk about like, you know, one, the growth of your business. And then when you started pivoting outside of your core business of mortgage and what were some of those first investments that you you did
0: yeah i think just to i say this all the time because like at this point now you know obviously i've gotten to a point where i'm speaking on a lot of events and people are kind of asking me about my story and everybody's obsessed with the idea of passive income and i love this podcast i've heard a bunch of your shows it's great and i think passive income and strategy is really the key because everyone wants their time back right the goal is always How do I work enough to where I have investments that are paying for the lifestyle that I want so that I can choose what I do with my time, whether that's family or travel or friends or work, you know, whatever it is you want to do. And I think the best way to do that is figure out a day job that makes a lot of money. Like if you're making 150K a year and you can save three grand a month, like you could be the best passive income investor ever. You just don't have enough capital to invest. So I think once Rick basically, I made like 150k net first year when I met him. Then it jumped up to 300. Then it was 500. Then it was 800. And you know you're making 70, 80 grand a month net. Yeah, you can go go invest 20, 30, 40 grand a month. The truth is, you don't even need a great passive income strategy. If you're investing 30 grand a month for 20 years and you're getting six percent on an S and P index fund, like you're gonna have a lot of money. And so uh, obviously these strategies and tactics enhance that money, but, and and certainly make better use of the same dollars. But I think, you know, having a strategy, whether it's a sales job at some company, whether it's your own business, whatever it is, having that high income day job is critical for building passive income.
1: Yeah. I think that's the great advice because actually a lot of people that listen to this are are high income earners. The problem is, is that they think they need to go do the next business as well. And the investment and so they're trading time for money and then going and investing into another job and obviously i think what you just said was some very sage advice about investing into stuff that makes you return even if you were just investing into an s p but you're making those bigger thirty thousand dollar uh investments a month the end of the year, that's a much bigger and times year, Two, three, four, five, ten, twenty, thirty 10, 20, 30 years down the road, you have this, this accumulation that is built and stop trading time for money.
0: But talking about my transition into investing. And again, a lot of this is fueled that I had a high earning day job, but the first thing I did was a flip one of the, so the mortgage business gets its business from referring realtors. And one of those referring realtors brought me an off market deal and was like, Hey, does some, one of your buyers, you know, want to buy this? It's a good deal. And I looked at it and I was like, how about we buy it? So we bought it for a million. We put like 20 grand in, we sold it for 1.3, like three months later, or two months later, it was very fast. We, we really didn't do anything to it. And, you know, you make a couple hundred grand and I'm like, Oh, I should flip for a passive income. So that was my initial journey into passive income.
1: Um, I don't know if you've, you know, uh, the people on the audience. So you know that was a cute cute thing that you said that flipping houses would going be a passive income. So you started flipping houses. How passive was that? And then you know maybe let's talk through your journey of flipping houses. you know, and I still think you do that today. How is that transition, and how passive has that been on on your side hustle?
0: Yeah, I'll give you like the kind of investing philosophy, but in the passive, by the time we had five or six flips going, me and my partner were staring at each other like, how the heck do we manage this? And then it was like, oh, well, we need to hire a construction manager. Oh, so we got to keep books for who, what are we spending on each project? Oh, wait, we need a weekly meeting to go through these things. And oh, I was like, oh, all the infrastructure I have in place on the, the loan business, I've got to apply to the flip business. And so I realized I did not create passive income. I created a second business. And so I treated it as such. And so, you know, I think philosophically, I think investments kind of have three major things to think about in terms of return, or just what is the investment? You have one, what is the return? Two, what is the risk? And three, how much effort do you have to put in? The flip, for example, is a lot of risk, a lot of return, but a lot of effort. So it's not passive at all. It's a good investment. And and if done well, it can make a lot of money, but it's closer to a job or a business than say what I would call a passive investment. So then I basically rolled from flips to Airbnb properties thinking, okay, well now I'm going to buy a bunch of buying holes and not rehab them, just buy them and start Airbnb them. And at one point I had 14 homes in Nashville, and we were Airbnbing them and it was a great return. We're buying a house for three We're getting seven grand a month in rents, which is gnarly numbers. You can never get that in long-term rents. And it was cash flowing like crazy, but same thing. I had to hire a manager, the manager and create weekly cadence to make sure the business was on track. And, you know, it's, again, I would call Airbnb is a high return, not as risky. Cause you have a single family asset that you can always rent out, but lots of work, not as much as a flip, but it's not certainly not easy right? Uh, And so, you know, I think just every investment needs to be reviewed with those ideas in mind.
1: So uh, that is a, again, I think that the disillusionment of that, a lot of people just think that, Oh, I own real estate and I'll just collect the rent checks. And it's it's pretty passive. And I, I, you know, I think that's a great insight that you created a new business, you know? And so you created a business of flipping a bit of flip business, and then you created an Airbnb, business that also has a whole lot of uh, working mechanisms. What, and I know your story, but like what caused you to transition into more of commercial real estate?
0: Well, so then it was, you know, the Airbnbs were a lot, but we we're also, again, I had the day job making, you know, five, six, seven, eight hundred 800 grand a year. And so, you know, and then also now the flips were turning over and we're making a lot of money in the flip business. So, It was just as the money was coming in, we're like, oh, let's do an Airbnb portfolio. And then it was like, oh, let's do apartments. So we got 120 apartment doors. And and so that kind of started that. And as part of that journey, we randomly got a retail center in Roseville. So kind of an area you know well. And, And we ended up, it had a golden one credit union and it had some inline tenants we had to fill. So it took a couple of years to fill the inline tenants. So it was a lot of work upfront. But then what I realized is after I had this thing, I had 15 year leases and I just get my checks every month and no phone calls. You know, I think it was just going across the asset classes and trying everything and realizing like, whoa, I like this retail asset class where that, and, and on the risk spectrum, I would call that one good return. Cause it's higher than any apartment. You buy them at seven or eight caps, but not good, not great. It's not Airbnb. You know, it's not flips. It's good. Uh, on, effort it's pretty low effort you just have to turn a tenant once every 10 year and risk it's pretty risky because when you lose a big tenant it's hard to replace them these days but you know if you pick the right tenants the right locations uh, you know it's it can be a pretty passive investment kind of going through all those asset classes that led to me saying hey i want to buy some retail and the key though is i need to find retail that's missing its anchor so that it's kind of a depressed asset and i can buy it for cheap and I need to have that anchor in hand. So that led to making a deal with Crunch Fitness and uh, buying retail centers to put gyms in that I already have a, an existing relationship and actually also an ownership interest in as well.
1: Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look, two of the most common questions I get asked are, where can I find good deals to invest into? And is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities, due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guests on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. We also host events, dinners, and give away VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now, back to the show. Yeah, I love, I love that. And that's actually, you, you're doing one of those in, in San Antonio when you're touring around. I think you just put the center in contract, or I don't know if you just closed on it, but it was exa- exactly that, what you just said. You're buying something that needs a problem solved. And so you can buy it at a discount, maybe, and probably most of the time, less than it would cost to build. You know, if you went to go out and build these 100,000 square foot or 200,000 square foot, it'd cost you $10, 20000000 million. Well, when you're buying it at, because it's missing some of the, uh, the tenants, you can get it at a discount. And so you're intrinsically already hedging your, your your risk profile a little bit. So the, how did that come about? How did you discover, you know, the crunch fitness? How did you discover solving that problem? I mean, it started with a golden one. Did you just immediately go from golden one, you know, little center and filling the end lines to let's go solve and buy these bigger retail centers? Or was it people that clued you into that? Was it a, a mentor or, or what led you in that direction?
0: Uh, I'll, I'll answer that. And I'll also clarify. Um, I wouldn't consider myself a passive real estate investor. What you said earlier about like, you know, creating this intrinsic value and buying for less than build costs. Correct, I would consider myself an operational, it's a business, I'm a value add guy and I'm working and creating values and deals. I'm at a spot in my career where I sort of see this as my like golden working years and I see an upcoming recession, So I see this as my time to really like roll my sleeves up and in the next 12 or 24 months, whenever we see what I perceive as a bottom, I think it's going to be kind of that big moment in my career where I unleash everything and acquire everything I can. And so, you know, as part of that scale, uh, you know, I only have so much cash. I mean, I make enough money, but you know, I can only buy so many with the money I have going in. So, you know, I need to both raise money and also I need to do value adds so like i'll give the crunch model to illustrate we buy the buildings for three million we put about two million in to put the crunch in uh the lease that we assigned to crunch which is pre-negotiated makes the building worth between eight and nine so when we're done we refinance out five million and the, the investor all the capital that went in came back so we can go do another one the the gym makes money And separately, after it pays its rent, the real estate makes about 20 grand a month passively. So in the end, it becomes a pretty passive investment, but the uh, process to get there is not passive. Finding the real estate, building it out, getting it all refinanced is a lot of work. And the other thing that's a lot of work is finding the tenant, which answers your question, which is how did you get to deciding on crunch? I'd say philosophically, I usually have a bunch of ideas rolling around in my head that I think are good ideas but I don't force the idea. It kind of comes naturally. Like I I loved the golden one. I hated managing the apartments because same thing, managing the manager. And so I knew I wanted like some kind of anchor, some kind of business that I could put in a retail. And I was randomly in San Diego. I walked into a crunch because it had just opened in town and they had like a free come check out our gym day or that sort of thing. And uh, it just struck me like a stack of bricks. I was like, this is the business. What I'm, it fills a big footprint. So when you put it in, it solves the problem of when a big anchor is gone, they don't really get filled. It's Amazon proof, which is big because, you know, anyone retail store selling stuff that Amazon eventually will kill them, like you got to worry about that. Whereas a gym, you got to go in person. And even like the technology trying to beat it, like Peloton, <laughs> what's their stock price right now? You know, <laughs> they're basically dead, right? Because at home equipment, you work out for six months and then you're bored, right? So like, I just checked all my boxes. Oh, and it's a cheap price point. So recession proof We're nine bucks a month or whatever. So I think when recession hits and everyone's going to stop their $200 a month yoga and want to go to the gym, I just, I just saw this business and I was like, this is the horse that I want to you know attach to on my journey. I tracked down the owner in the club, but took him out to lunch and, you know, learned about the business model. We spent a couple of years just flying around to different markets, looking at the crunches, learning the numbers, helping me understand like what type of real estate they want And in that process, we bought the San Antonio and Fresno regions, uh, and they already own San Diego and I believe Dallas. And so, you know, that led to this ability. So we have like 27 units we need to put on. So, you know, if I can add one a year or two a year uh, and just keep turning the money over, I think that's a, a pretty happy plan. But it's not passive. I'll tell you that.
1: Yeah, no. And that's part of the thing is, is like, uh, you know, I, I see you as an, an active participant in all of these things. I mean, I think the passive is probably more the investor that gives you the two, 3 million bucks to go buy the deal. And then is going to wait until it's stabilized and get their money back out kind of thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, the first investor, they put up like 1.7. They got it back in just over 12 months. And they're literally now collecting like I'd have to look seven or eight grand a month, like in perpetuity, like it's a, it's like the sweetest deal of all time. So yes, the passive investor in our person is the person putting money into the deal.
1: Yeah. And that's, and that's part of the thing is like, that's, that's the golden ticket right there is go get, uh, and and we often structure a lot of our deals uh, similar. And we've actually been moving more and more to that model is like, Hey, we're gonna get you all your money back. The faster we can do that, and then you're still in the deal and you're making cash flow. You've got all your money. You're playing with house money, and now you get a check for it's, it's three grand, seven grand, ten grand. It depends on the deal size, but that allows you to start making, you know, building your lifestyle off of that. You know, I, I see this as I, I agree with you from a market cycle where we're seeing you know, choppy waters, uh, a storm is a brewing, uh, so to speak, and, and there's going to be some maybe some buying opportunities. I feel like you've also we, we've we had some conversations that you've kind of seen this happening for a little while. And I feel like you've been, I wouldn't say passive in or at least for like hoarding more cash or doing things. But I feel like you've been preparing for this for a little while. What is it that you saw? What is it that you're seeing today that is? Got you excited or concerned or seeing, you know, a coming recession happening? And what are like, is there a key matrix that you're looking at or, you know, uh, you know, just the pulse of, of the markets? Uh, what is it that has you uh, excited for the next 12 to 24 months?
0: There's a lot to unpack there and we only have so much time. Uh, let me focus on economic conditions. I, because I'm a real estate man, I'm mostly thinking about real estate but I think there's some pretty simple metrics that revolve around affordability. Uh, in California, you can Google like California affordability index and just pull it up. And if you ever line that up versus a, a chart of home prices, you can see like uh, very simply in San Jose, for example, when about 35% of people can afford a home, you, you're, you're at the bottom-ish. That's your 2008, 910. that's your 2001, 2, that's your 92, 93, 94 when about 18% of people can home, afford a home, you're probably at the top. So like, I, I have just a couple of little like dashboards that I look at that are like, uh, that's my radar of, hey, this is expensive or this is cheap. And I don't think you're ever going to like, know when it's going to shift from cheap or to expensive. You just know that when it's cheap, you turn on the gas pedal and buy aggressively. And when it's expensive, you have to be very, very careful and slow up and, and be more creative with how you value add. Um, whereas I think when it's cheap, you're more creative with like, how do you get capital and expand quickly? And you can be a little sloppier because you know, you're at the bottom. Yeah. I would say that's it in terms of like just basic economy stuff, but you're right. I mean, I don't know. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I mean, like, hasn't it felt like since maybe 17, 18, it's been expensive. We've been at the top side of the buy box and that are, you know, the expensive side of things. And then 2020 hits and we get COVID and I, I, COVID was a head fake, right? Looked like the recession I was all, all waiting for. And then they printed so much money that the asset prices never follow. And so now instead they printed so much money, asset prices got propped up, things were inflated. And now that the indexes were even more messed up and I'm sitting there in COVID going, I've never seen any numbers like this. And I don't even know what to say. And and people are buying and it's running up and I'm sitting there on the sidelines like holding because I'm like, this doesn't feel right. And Of course, now they're letting the air out of the balloon and taking the money back, and assets are getting to more reasonable prices. But I think they've overadjusted, and we're going to finally get that catalyst to get to the recession that I've been talking about for years. Although, you know, I don't—I never want to be that guy who talks about it for five, six years and never takes any action, right? Like at some point, you got to like work inside of whatever environment you're in. Yeah,
1: I, I don't disagree. You know, be like. I wrote a book about the recession and how to buy distressed assets, and then everything tripled in value. So I was just like, ah. <laughs> and then people were like, "What are you? You know, a Chicken Little?" Uh, and I was like, "It was. It was supposed to happen, man. The government went. The numbers were there. Yeah, it was. It was. That, that was the time. Like, it, it was the time to, to do that. But then, like you said, the government went and printed twenty trillion dollars, and whew, everything took off but you know, I don't think you're actually sitting on the sidelines. I, I see yours being pretty active and maybe that's just because you're a more action-oriented person in general. So what is it that you're, you've done over the last couple of years, uh, investments, and maybe some of these are still under secret, or, you know, you're still developing them in stealth mode or something like that. But what have you been working on the last couple of years, even though that you felt like it was getting closer and may have been a recession, you know, in 2020?
0: Okay. So I'll say this when we, I just explained earlier about how the crunch model was so perfect, you know, recession proof, Amazon proof, blah, blah, blah in person, you know, all these things. I didn't underwrite for pandemic. And pandemic was freaking tough on the gyms. I'll say that not not so much in Texas, but, but in California, like especially because we opened one in September of 2020. We had started it before COVID. COVID hits, we're just full steam ahead with construction, and we're just like, well, we're in it, so let's see what happens. It is the hardest thing possible to open a gym when you're getting shut down. Then a couple of members sign up, then you're shut down, and everyone cancels. Like it definitely killed the momentum, uh, and we're just now in California seeing kind of the momentum come back in that one. Uh, but our other two are doing really well. So we've done three of those projects so far. I like those projects. Obviously, I wanted to give it a little runway to make sure there wasn't going to be a ninth variant to come out. And it seems like seems like people generally are just not going to accept the lockdowns anymore. So I think that's probably over. So, you know, we we are going to continue developing the gym. So we're actively looking for real estate now and hoping to do, you know, a site or two a year. That That's that. But I, there was a moment as I was going through this, Process and I started looking at kind of where all my positions are and the stuff that I own, and I mean I'm pretty heavy in gym assets. I got like 40 million dollars of retail anchored gyms, and I'm like, you know, I love them and they're cash flowing and it's great. It's great cash flow, but uh, that is a bit risky. And so, you know, I kind of made me think like I want to be in real estate like in places that have high appreciation and are protected, but these places are really hard to get cash flow. You know, as, as at this point, we're pretty deep into the process of, you know, basically buying lots and doing prefabricated houses and putting them down quickly and doing kind of built to rents for cash flow. This is actually the recession model. We've got four projects going right now, maybe call it six or seven million dollars worth of projects in Austin. And we're actively getting ready for recession. We're saying, hey, it's probably a 12 to 18 month timeline. Uh, these first four just to kind of get the kinks out of the process and make sure we know what's going on. We have a manufacturing plant that we're under on contract on to buy. It'll take six months to close and then another six to 12 months to set up. Uh, we're raising capital right now for this process. And the idea is when home prices go down 10 or 20 or 30 percent, you can finally buy in good markets like Austin or L.A. or San Francisco and actually buy, rebuild, rent, cash flow. And I'm hoping for, you know, 50, 100, 200 units. I, I don't know how big we'll be able to get it. But I think, imagine if 2009, 10, 11, you just saddled up, raised capital and started buying to hold. I mean, I think it's it's just one of those opportunities.
1: So when you see that, the coming storm, do you think it's something, real estate values declining as much as they did in 08, 09, kind of... Correction, or is it something else that you see?
0: Uh, I This doesn't feel the same as the 09 one. Actually, let me say this first. The different eras you know, are similar, but none are ever the same. And so this whole quantitative easing thing and the Fed bailing out any problems like wasn't really a thing. Even in the 08 recession, it happened, but it happened very slowly. I mean, we blew out the amount that they put in the housing with COVID, like in like three days, like we put in like six times as much. So like, and they spread that out over six years. So like, you know, understanding what the Fed's going to do and how they're going to disrupt the market is, is, is an impossible task. So like, you can't really predict and say what's going to happen. But having been in the lending business for 17 years and watched the 08 one happen, uh, that one was led by irresponsible lending, going 100% financing, not checking income. So if a house was worth, You know, someone could only afford 300, but then they could buy 600 with some cheap interest only payments. You're really inflating the homes and there's no equity. Whereas this one, a bunch of capital was given out. People got really low interest rates and then their values went way up because people could buy with cheaper capital. Now they've pulled that capital out. The rates have gone up. People can't quite afford as much, but everyone who has them has a good rate and it's fixed. And, you know, everyone qualified and put a down payment down. People will walk away from a no money down home quickly. But if somebody's put their life savings into something, they're going to fight for it, especially if you got some two point whatever percent rate, like you'll get a second job or drive some Ubers or figure the thing out. And so I don't, I don't think this one goes through housing as much. And I know some people will tell this narrative of there's a housing shortage and inventory and all all that stuff. And that stuff's valid, but you can't take rates from two to six and then not expect housing prices to go, especially once you start seeing the layoffs come through, there's going to be some problems. Like I don't think it goes down 40 or 50% nationwide. It probably goes down 15 or 20 and certain markets are stronger than others to resist it. You know?
1: Yeah. I, uh, I don't disagree with you as far as that there's, there's still some pain to come. And, and obviously from the printing, the, uh, Crazy amount of money that they printed, uh, and quantitative easing, and and like I said, uh, I know we got to make sure that to, to uh, you know wrap this up here. There's a couple of questions uh, I didn't really prep you for. I wanted to ask. Uh, one of them is, what is one thing that you have spent money on that has given you the greatest return on investment for freedom? And I'll give you a couple of examples of that. You know, like somebody hired someone to do their laundry, you know, because they were like, man, I hate doing laundry. It, it, you know, my wife and I, you know, don't fold it, don't do those other things. They hired that. Someone else they had mentioned they just buy books. Anytime anybody ever mentions a book, they buy it. And if made, take them months to get to, but then like every nonfiction book they've ever read, they believe has added, uh, they've made a return on investment on that because it added a little nugget to their head. Other people have mentioned masterminds and other things like that. So is there anything that just allowed you a significant return on investment for your freedom?
0: Both the things you said, I mean, that house cleaner that comes to my house Monday and Friday and does my laundry and drives all my stuff around. I mean, that is like and I put a post up for 16 bucks an hour and people take the job. It's it's totally money, but uh, I, I won't repeat it. Uh, I'm going to say off the top of my head, Asana. So having really tight task management systems that all the team members are plugged into. Man, it makes it so easy to lead a team, a meeting, make sure nobody forgets anything. Not, you know, keeping lists handwritten all over the place that get lost or it, it, people aren't Keeping their notes in one spot. I, I mean, I swear, I, at meetings that used to take an hour, twelve minutes, because like sometimes I don't even take it. I just read through everyone's comments. I know exactly what's going on, and it's like maybe send four emails with questions, and I'm on to the next thing.
1: That's interesting. Asana is a project management program. For people that don't know, you can uh, we'll, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. There's uh, several others. I mean, I know that Asana and
0: first Tuesday, I think it's a big one. Monday, Monday monday.com,
1: you know, a handful of other things like that, you know, similar salesforce, I think even does some of that if you're a bigger kind of corporate kind of thing. So that's, that's interesting. That's the first time I've heard that. And uh, I I don't actually disagree. And and I'll say it's not Um,
0: like, doesn't need to be a business tool. Like I have a personal project of Asana stuff that like is get the laundry, do this, do that. Like everything's just kind of in there and like, I share it with my personal assistant, who basically is my mom. Uh, but like, uh, I mean, I, I have friends that like use it inside of their family and just like keep it organized. It's it's kind of crazy, but it's it's an affordable tool. It's good.
1: Yeah, that's 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 awesome. And it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I was like, I was I was talking that for about an assistant role that I'm hiring for, and there is like even some of the job description is almost like make sure Jake is doing this. And I was like, so I, I don't register my car. Like, I don't know how to do that. I looked the other day and I like the license plate, the sticker on the thing was expired. And I was like, why'd that happen? Well, cause I, my assistant got moved, promoted. I don't have somebody doing it. And it was just like the sticker there got paid for, but it's, I just haven't even put it on. So it's just like stupid stuff like that, that I don't do that, I, and know, maybe some people are like, oh my gosh, he doesn't even do those things. You know, he doesn't do, I was like, yeah, I, I don't do those things. I, I focus how, how do you on think other people things remember normally. Life. Um, wanted to they put sticky notes up, like, <laughs> for your
0: interest. I, I don't know. I just don't get it.
1: <laughs> uh, and like you, I have probably like 50 different things that are going on in my head. From projects, things that I want to build, things that are actively going, things that I'm looking at. You know, I think there's a lot of businesses that I haven't started that are I'm thinking about or, you know, uh, you know, processing. So, yeah, I oftentimes will forget some of those things or, or, you know, honestly, not I don't forget because it's not even doesn't even enter into my like realm of the world, like my my to do list of things that I need to do are 7000 items long. And so I was like, I can only do like one or two important things a day. And that's about all I can do.
0: And that's pretty good.
1: Yeah. That's a good day. You know, some days it's none. So I want to go back to, you know, as we're wrapping this thing up is, um, books or podcasts that you have, you know, found a tremendous value in, and maybe it's one that you've gifted more uh, to someone else, or maybe it's a little bit more unknown. Uh, what has been a really valuable book or podcast that you've shared out to other people?
0: Oh man. I, and, and part of the Rick Ruby training is being a gifter, constantly gifting the people around you. So I, I mean, I give out books on books on books. If I read something great, I'm buying 50 copies. Like that's just a thing, but, uh, it depends on the season, right? If I'm trying to get myself fired up and motivated to go do something big, I like anything Grant Cardone in the books, 10x principle, all that stuff, even though I really don't necessarily like the guy and his message all the time. Like it does get you jacked up. I think it, it so. I think different books apply to different things. Rocket Fuel is a great fire up, go sell book. Untethered Soul, when I'm feeling like too stressed and too tied to it, if I'm trying to kind of release from, you know, being so connected. That's a, that's a good one, but I'd say probably favorite book of all time. Ooh, the big leap talks about getting into your zone of genius and staying to this place. that's beautiful. And you're at your best. I think it's, that's, it's pretty strong.
1: David, how can people reach out to you? Where can they find you? And then what is an ask of the audience uh, as they're listening, as they kind of reach out to you? Is there any, you know projects you have coming up or ways that they can connect or maybe add value or bring something to you a deal obviously capital uh, something along those lines as we're wrapping
0: up well i mean obviously this is a passive income show everything i've talked about we're working on very actively and i think you know that's the best way to passively invest is when people are spending 80 hours a week working on your investment i mean there's nothing better than that so yeah we are always raising capital and i think anyone who Is you know thinking about protecting themselves into this recession, investing in great operators like yourself, great projects. We're always looking at new investors and meeting people. Like Jake mentioned earlier, I love meeting with people. Like if I'm in your town, I'll stop by. If you're ever in Austin, look me up. Uh, Happy to spend a day with somebody uh, and hang out. The best way to reach me is on my Instagram and. I believe I have a lot of followers and I do get a bunch of messages, but I personally read all of them and respond and quickly, uh, it's at Mr. Lauber M R L A W V E R.
1: Awesome, David. This has been a, a fun episode again. Um, I, I think we're due f- to hang out again. I'm actually just finishing up an apartment complex in Austin. So I plan on being out there relatively soon. I think we're starting to get flooring in and some other things like that. So maybe we'll, we'll make a day of it and we'll eat some, uh, some tacos or something like that in Austin soon.
0: Uh, Sounds like a winner. Let's be in touch. I really appreciate you having me on the show and uh, super stoked at seeing what you're doing and that helped the hotel projects moving along, man. I'm, I'm so happy for you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Have a fantastic
1: day. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at Jake.realestate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.